ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Some listeners may know that I've become fascinated with U.S.-Russian relations before 1917. And when I started looking into this history, I was surprised to find out that the United States and Russia had pretty friendly relations. This was surprising because we are often treated to a popular narrative that Russia and the United States have been adversaries for centuries. This hasn't always been the case. Moreover, these relations weren't just at the diplomatic level but included commercial and cultural contact and exchange that stretched back to the American colonial period. Sadly, few historians study U.S.-Russian relations in the 19th century. Norman Saul, however, is one exception. So I turned to him to learn a bit about the period. Norman Saul is a professor emeritus of history and of Russian and East European and Eurasian studies at the University of Kansas, where he taught for 40 years. He is the author of several books on U.S.-Russian relations, including Distant Friends, the United States and Russia, 1763 to 1867, Concord and Conflict, the United States and Russia, 1867 to 1914, War and Revolution, the United States and Russia, 1914 to 1921, among many others. He's the editor of the Journal of Russian-American Studies, and the book series, Americans in Revolutionary Russia, published by Slavica Press. Here's Norman Saul. You know, most scholarship on, on U.S.-Russia relations focuses on the 20th century, and, and specifically after 1945. Um, but in your work, you've mostly dealt with U.S.-Russia relations before 1945 and mostly in the 19th century. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about what drew you to this period. Well, partly, I think, um, because political scientists rather than historians have pretty much dominated the field after 1945. But also, I was particularly interested or fascinated, I think, by early naval history sort of wrote a few papers on this and read hornblower series and the napoleonic period and and all of that and so when i got into russian studies which was early and unfocused i began uh, studying russian in my freshman year of college and at indiana university which had a program um, in Slavic studies, and I ended up majoring in it without much of a focus or not much on history. Uh, I was fortunate to get a Fulbright scholarship to the University of London, 
after graduating from Indiana, and there I was surrounded by history. And that's where I began to really be an historian. Add a little personal note. Uh, growing up on a farm in Indiana, um, I was amazed by a cousin who went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, graduated in 1941, assigned to Pearl Harbor. He, he survived that, but uh, um, and then all the rest of World War II in the Pacific. But that uh, intrigued me <laughs> and put me into more of naval history or na naval interests, shall we say. So how did you go from, say, naval interests into looking at U.S.-Russia relations? Well, it was really that that kind, kind of got me started. Discovering in my studies in London at the School of Slavonic Studies that, well, first of all, I, I said I wanted to study modern Soviet Navy. And my tutor there, Hugh Seton Watson, said, you have to start at the beginning. <laughs> that means Peter the Great in the 18th century. And so that really got me back into that. And uh, I was, uh, my roommate during my year in London was a, a, per, a person in English literature who focused on the 18th century. <laughs> so I began to read literature of the 18th century during that time. Um, and that led me to a discovery in the British Library of a book by uh, George McCartney. I've written about this in an article recently. He wrote a book. He was the British ambassador to Russia in the 1760s. That's the early beginning period of Catherine the Great. And he was there for four years. And uh, he wrote a book about it, an account of Russia in 1767. 1767. And um, I discovered that book in the George III section of the British Library. And I got fascinated by it. Uh, he drew on the Legislative Commission records of details, statistics, and so on in his account of Russia. And it was the only copy I could ever find. And I don't think anyone has found any other copy. It was printed privately by the um, Walpole family in uh, England, Strawberry Press was the name of it. But uh, I could never find another copy. I looked at Oxford and Cambridge and all other libraries. <laughs> but anyway, it's now available generally in a digital form. You know, that's one of the things when I started like reading, some reading some of your work, your your books about U.S.-Russia relations from really the, the 1770s, um, that I was surprised to find out that there actually was some contact between, say, early uh, colonial American figures with Russia. In particular, one of the things that fascinated me was learning that uh, a young John Quincy Adams spent time in St. Petersburg. Uh, so what was what was some of the early contacts, these early contacts like with between Americans and Russians? Well, before the Revolutionary War, beginning actually in 1763, uh, there was direct trade between Boston and um, and St. Petersburg without stopping in the British Isles. And 
when I was getting into McCartney, I went into the foreign office papers, diplomatic papers, the reports that he was sending back to London from St. Petersburg, and he made a, be- a special note that there were American ships coming in to that port, St. Petersburg, without the in violation of the navigation laws, which required colonial ships to stop in Britain, pay fees before they went on to the continent. And uh, and so that was a sign of American independence even before <laughs> the, the war. <laughs> and there were a number of ships that came from Boston to St. Petersburg. Now there's a connection there, of course, with the Adams family who knew about that <laughs> was going on. They didn't participate in it, but... Uh, uh, they knew people who were participating. And and surprisingly, another thing I found out was that uh, during the Revolutionary War, Catherine the Great pretty much remained neutral in terms of it, the Russian, Russian government's attitude to the American uh, colonists. Maybe you could call it neutrality. Her declaration of armed neutrality uh, was in favor of the uh, rebelling colonies in 1780. And it was aimed against Great Britain's, uh, the British uh, seizure of sailors and ships and so forth uh, during that period. And um, an effort by Russia and the League that she formed uh, to counteract that British violation, you might say, of neutrality of the seas. That favored American colonies. Right. It wasn't out of any love, say, for the revolution in, in the Americas. <laughs> it's important to state, right? No, but there were other direct contacts. There was a Russian named Fyodor Karjavin who um, was active in Paris and the French support of the colonies. And uh, uh, he went to America and taught uh, revolutionary leaders and helped uh, develop a smuggling operation out of the French colonies in the West Indies. So so what were these early U.S.-Russia relations like in this late 18th century and into the 19th century? It was partly curiosity. I mean, there were people in the, who were just traveling, people who went to Europe, the Grand Tour, uh, from the from from the uh, now the United States, and uh, say, oh, why don't we go to Russia? <laughs> Include that in the great tour. They had heard about Saint Petersburg and the, all the uh, development, the architecture and museums and everything, and that was part of the contact cultural cultural interest. But the other, and I probably more important, was the commercial interest. Um, the shipping again, which uh, had started in 1763. And what was the trade? Well, the American ships would go to the West Indies, pick up what they called colonial goods, coffee, sugar, and things like that, and take them to St. Petersburg and load up with what were then usually called naval stores, uh, imp for rope, uh, rough linen for sailcloth and iron, especially iron, uh, from, from St. Pe- Petersburg, 
Iron was important for anchors and chains and so forth, and nails for ships and those things that go around barrels <laughs> that's part of shipping and uh, and bring that back to New England and that uh, developed the shipping industry in in New England, the building ships from all through the 19th century. And that trade continued and grew uh, through the first half of the 19th century. And what were the diplomatic relations like? Diplomatic relations were quite friendly because the both countries' main concern was British naval power, British dominance of the seas, that the United States was weary of, and so was uh, leery of, and so was the uh, uh, the Russian Empire. You know, what's interesting about the, you know, the United States and Russia, of course, has have many, many differences in, in the political structure of their government, society, culture. But there's, I, I always found there's, there are a couple of really interesting aspects to both uh, of, of these countries in terms of their relationships. And one of which is that both the United States and Russia are continental empires that expanded over for America, the North American steppe, and then for Russia, the Eurasian steppe. Um, so and they have both a sense of, of manifest destiny. So talk about each nation's sense of their own manifest destiny and, and how do they compare? That's a good question. And I think a book could be written about it. <laughs> uh, I've touched on it in my work, certainly. And uh, the Russians would say, you know, you're going west, we're going east. And there's no conflict because we're not going to meet each other in the either continent. In fact, there was a meeting of the Russians and Americans. In fact, right in California with the Fort Ross engagement, uh, the establishment of Fort Ross in Northern California and um, Alaska, of course, being a major Russian possession, in fact, on North America. And Americans were fascinated by the opportunities of a land mass, Russia, uh, Siberia. There was a fascination by Siberia, of Siberia, and the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad, which the Americans helped build. And, uh, anyway, but there was a sense of, uh, of self-identification that, uh, we have our manifest destinies to realize in this new territory that's being uh, developed. It is quite it is quite fascinating in terms of um, how we think about, say, the the way Russia you know Russia expanding east, and of course they have an indigenous population that they have to a non Russian indigenous population that they have to contend with uh, and manage and you know conquer. And the Americas, too, and Americans moving westward also have an indigenous population that they have to manage and conquer. Um, and, and perhaps the, I guess the question is, is what, what can we learn about each of these societies by comparing that experience of, you know, continental colonial expansion? Uh, just a brief observation. I'm no expert on that subject. Um, I would say the Russians did a much better job of accommodating uh, the non-Russian populations in the new territories. 
than we did. That Americans, the solution to the Indians was just to kill them, get rid of them. Um, and that's what happened to a lot of them, Indian wars and all that. The, the Russians was more of a assimilation process uh, in, with the natives of Siberia. There's little um, record of wars or being fought over that territory. We we welcome you into the empire is more the attitude, uh, whereas uh, the American attitude was more of domination, elimination of the of the uh, opposition and settling that territory. I'm just thinking again about the commonality of interest, and one thing was railroads, and. Uh, when Russia started to build railroads, which came on fairly late, actually, the um, first one being uh, between Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, they looked to the United States because they had the same problem of continental expansion and long-distance railroads from the beginning. And, uh, and the Trans-Siberian was modeled on the transcontinental railroads in the United States. If they can do it, we can do it, and uh, and all that. And when they looked for innovations in railroad development, like making building locomotives, um, railroad cars, and so forth, they looked to the United States. And the first engineers for the uh, first railroad in Russia were American, hired uh, because they knew how to do these things. And the first uh, builder of locomotives in Russia was an American company. That's one of the things I, they, the, that comes out clearly in your books is, um, you know, the focus. I mean, you have a lot of cultural exchange for the 19th century and early 20th century, which I think is really important. And, and we'll get to that in a bit. But um, in in line with your comments about railroads, that how, uh, what an important role Americans played in Russian industrial development. Um, it, it seems that one of the main things that ties between these two countries really all the way up into the 1930s was this, this economic relationship and, and especially the use of American expertise and, and companies to, to help with industrialization. Yes, that's, that's quite right. Um, Sergei Vita, the first major industrialization program, looked to the United States for the models, and so did Stalin yeah. with the five-year plans. Right, and, I think uh, I, I think Magnitogorsk, if I remember correctly, Magnitogorsk was somewhat based on uh, Decatur. Uh, yes, it was built by a Cleveland Engineering McKee, I think was the name. Um, McKee Engineering in Cleveland designed Magnitogorsk. But, but more that I, more I know of is, uh, the Nizhny, Nov, uh, Nizhny Novgorod automobile plant, which was built by an American company, also from Cleveland, but the Austin Company. And one thing that I've been able to do on my research is get into records, private records of companies like the Austin Company and uh, see what they had to say about the five-year plans that were going on 
and they built that plant, the largest automobile plant ever. The, the Russians came to the United States and first went to Ford because they knew uh, Ford. Ford was known everywhere in Russia, and uh, particularly by the, in the Soviet period. And they went to Ford. Can you build me a build our automobile plant? And Ford says, "We don't build plants. We build cars." And, and referred them to this Cleveland company <laughs> that built factories and built automobile factories already had. And so um, they were the ones that were contracted to do the job. And they, the Soviet planning system liked Austin, particularly because the Austin method, what they called it, the Austin method, was to lay everything out from the beginning, every nut, and screw was uh, designed on the planning sheets in engineering laboratories, or you might say, um, in the in Cleveland. Before they even went to Russia, they had all the plans laid out, and uh, the Soviet planning idea fit in well with that. And they built big, which the Russians like too. Right. Planning and building big. Those are two qualities for any five-year plan, that's for sure. Um, uh, now, going back to the, to the mid-19th century, another kind of a common feature um, between Russia and the United States, of course, is their, their respective experiences with systems of human bondage. And the interesting fact that both of these respective systems of human bondage, serfdom in Russia, was abolished in 1861, and uh, slavery in the United States abolished in 1865. So how did... 1863. 1863, excuse me. That was the proclamation of emancipation. Right, I even looked that up, uh, and I still messed it up. Um, So how did the... How did these systems of human bondage and their abolition figure into U.S.-Russia relations in, in the middle of the 19th century? Well, I think uh, there were both countries were interested in the uh, background, the abolition movement in the United States and the abolishment, uh, abolishing of serfdom in Russia. There's a background of several, a number of years that led up to these things and uh, and each country was aware of what was going on in the other country uh, in that process and so there was a mutual kind of collaboration you might say that were leading uh, one supported the other you might say for example uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in Russia in several editions in Russian uh, before the abolition of serfdom. And that book had a big effect on, promoted the uh, the whole idea of getting rid of serfdom. And I think one more thing that's different uh, in the two countries is that in the American case, there was not much forethought about what we're going to do with the slaves after slavery was abolished. And uh, in Russia, there was much more thought about what we're going to do with the serfs. They're going to be here, right? They're going to be 
and much larger number and much wider spread over the country than than uh, slaves in the U.S. Um, and when emancipation came, the slaves were just set loose by legal authority of the uh, federal government. And the uh, and in Russia, well, we got to work this out, and it turned out to be a very long, laborious process uh, to get land, keep the keep the serfs here with land. We don't want them running around loose. And we didn't let them run around loose in this country because we had a a racial apartheid, really, that continued for many decades. And I think it also, it's worth pointing out, too, that the processes in which both of these systems were abolished were, of course, vastly different. And part of it is the nature of the government's uh, that each system existed in. So, you know, in Russia, it could be abolished from above by the Tsar forming commissions and a plan and some kind of negotiation with the nobility. Whereas in the United States, there was the, 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 um, the opposition was far, uh, more, uh, amongst the, within the, the Southern elite. And of course, it came in the context of a civil war. In the Russian case, the problem was more technology. Uh, not uh, providing uh, the serfs with the equipment they needed for modern farming. It was poverty, I guess you might say. It was a big problem. The Mercers didn't have the money uh, to modernize agriculture, whereas that was being done uh, by new immigrants to places like Kansas, you know, a number of these immigrants came from Russia, um, but they were not Russian. They were German, Volga Germans and Mennonite, and uh, settled large areas of Kansas, in fact. Um, but they came here partly because of the need for modernization, which they couldn't find in Russia. Anyway, I've been reading just recently a book by actually a series of articles that I'm trying to make into a book um, by Ernest Poole, who was a sort of liberal, well, he was a part socialist anyway, uh, already in America, but got fascinated by what was going on in Russia and uh, by Ekaterina Breshkovskaya, who was touring in United States at the beginning of 1905 and wrote a long article. We interviewed her like we're having an interview <laughs> and uh, uh, wrote up an article for the Outlook, a popular magazine, weekly magazine that was uh, published at that time. It had a large circulation. And the article got caught up. I mean, people were really taken with this interview that he made with Breshko Breshkovskaya, and there was a lot of sympathy for the radical movement in Russia at that time. And and so, as things began to break up in Russia in 1905, Bloody Sunday in January, uh, Poole decides to go. He's, well, sent there by the Outlook magazine, and they agreed to pay him for a number of articles that he would write on Russia in 1905, and to 
They're serialized, seven of them, uh, seven articles. So I'm trying to put that together in Poole on Russia in 1905. Uh, and one of the things that he <laughs> remarks about, or he travels through the countryside, and in villages he finds everyone wants tractors or something that can do a better job of plowing and doing this and that. And they're not getting them. <laughs> and he goes back in 1917. And this leads us into that other question about my connection with the project of republishing um, things on 1917. And um, I did one on Ernest Poole, who book this time was published as a book um, on 1917. And I've republished that. Let me ask you about this you know, first about, um, you know, some of the, the, you know, you have a, one of the things you detail throughout your work is the, the, the cultural connections and the fact you have Russians who are traveling in the United States and you have Americans who travel and, and experience Russia. So uh, before we get to the, the particular experience of how they witnessed 1917, what are some, how did, what are some general ways in which Americans and Russians understood each other and their respective countries? Well, of course, part of it was linked to that uh, serfdom slavery issue we just covered. Uh, and then also the opportunities for development that people, that Americans would see in Russia. Uh, and we're fascinated by some aspects of the culture, particularly the the religion, the religious, they got caught up in things like church music, the, uh, not exactly music, but the choral aspects of the service in the Orthodox Church. Um, I know most about, about this through uh, my study of Charles Crane, an American industrialist, really, uh, who helped build railroads by establishing a factory that built air brakes for the Russian railroads. The factory was in St. Petersburg. He saw opportunities in Russia, but he was also fascinated by Russian culture and uh, brought over people to explain and talk about, lecture about, to universities like the University of Chicago. He had uh, three lectures that came there in uh, the early 20th century, 1900, 1901, 1902, 1903. He first met at a mission to Russia. He led a small delegation, including the president of the University of Chicago, William Rainey Harper, who he knew personally. And uh, they went to uh, first to Kiev and then Moscow. They were coming in overland, uh, then to St. Petersburg. And in Moscow, they had two meetings with Leo Tolstoy. This is 19, the year 1900, spring, trying to get him to come to America to give lectures. Well, he was too old and <laughs> and too busy <laughs> with other <Yeah>. things <laughs> to uh, to spend his time doing that. But he was supportive of the idea and gave them some names that they might consider that uh, were more fluent in English and uh, might be suit 
well with uh, their purposes. And the first one was Maxim Kovalevsky, a sociologist, a founder of modern sociology, um, and the, who's also fluent in English. He had already been to America once before that. And uh, the next was Pavel Miryakov, <laughs> historian at the University of St. Petersburg. And uh, he had to wait a year to study up on his English. And then there was uh, uh, Thomas Masaryk, who was not really Russian, but uh, knew a lot about Russian culture. And uh, he came to the University of Chicago, too, uh, all sponsored and paid for by Charles Crane. But there are other instances like that of... uh, the Chicago World's Fair was a major point uh, in cultural dissemination, I guess. The uh, World's Fair attracted attention from all over. Every country had an exhibit. The Russian exhibit was one of the largest, and the Russian performances of... Uh, Choral and orchestral music were uh, one of the most largest, biggest hits of the Chicago World's Fair, and that was. uh, And they brought a lot of people. People just came from Russia. Were commissioned to go there by Sergei Vita, who wanted to learn. He sent specialists (laughs) to learn. They had to report back and write books basically about their visit and they toured the country uh, in addition to Chicago and uh, Crane was involved with much of that as well since he lived there and had a house and big house and entertained Russians like um, well ones I've mentioned do we have a sense of what, what Russians thought of late 19th century and early 20th century America? Well, they were impressed, of course, by uh, and, and expectant of what, what they were. I think most impressed by was it wasn't just New York or even Chicago, but all over the country things were booming. It was the boom, <laughs> boom period. And when they went out into the country, like most of them did, uh, traveling like to Santa Fe, New Mexico, or all across to San Francisco. They were impressed by the trains, by the services along the railroads, uh, where they could get off and have a dinner in a small town <laughs> and all that. In, in thinking about the, the U.S.-Russia relations in the 19th century, you know, as you said, they were quite friendly and, and so much so that you, one of your books is, is entitled Distant Friends. Um, but something seems to happen with the 1880s and, and I haven't been able to fully put, put my finger on it, but it seems that with beginning in the 1880s, uh, relations gradually begin to turn the other way. They become less friendly, uh, at the diplomatic level, at least. So do you have a sense of what caused, uh, this friendly relationship to begin to break down? Yes, certainly. Uh, Two major factors. One was anti-Semitism in Russia, pogroms and all that uh, rising, 
becoming more intense and brutal. And the fact that there was a sizable Jewish immigration already here in America that was very sensitive to that and anti-Russian. And they were strategically located, let me say, to create an anti-Russian situation, particularly on New York, uh, Lower East Side and so forth, where there was a congregation of Russian Jews. Uh, the other factor was the political uh, oppression, that is, radicals being locked up in prison. The Siberia in the Exile System, which is a major book, well, first series of articles in Century Magazine uh, by George Kennan. That's the first George Kennan. <laughs> and uh, that created an atmosphere of hostility toward Russia, their treatment of political prisoners and so those are the two things coming in sort of together in the 1880s that uh, and ironically this is also a time of major economic influence uh, international harvester and singer sewing machine and all these things coming into russia uh, at that time uh, from the from the united states if you can, talk a bit about uh, George Kennan's influence in shaping American attitudes towards Russia in the 1880s and into the 1890s. Um, uh, you know, how do, we, how do we measure his influence? Let me begin by saying that George Kennan got interested in Russia by being part of a Western Union telegraph uh, operation that was to link New York with St. Petersburg by a line, telephone line, telegraph line that would go from the U.S. through Alaska, across the Bering Strait, and across Siberia. It didn't work out because uh, the Atlantic Cable got laid <laughs> before they could get it done. <laughs> so anyway, the... Uh, Kennan went on to write about Russia and to visit Russia and tell about his uh, experiences there in Siberia and uh, went back to explore and uh, the prison system in Siberia and he wrote about it in, uh, and that led to his being personally anti-Russian not so much at that time in the 1880s, but when he tried to go back again in the 1890s and was expelled from Russia in the 1890s, something. And then he, became, he was uh, continued to write a lot, articles mostly, uh, about uh, Russian relations and that they were a bad country, basically. And this continued into the Russo-Japanese War, where he definitely sided with Japan and went to Japan, in fact, and uh, brought up a, uh, emphasized a pro-Japanese uh, mission in, and that's where the United States was at the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War. That turned toward in the middle of it when they saw Russia getting beaten so bad, and uh, they were concerned about that. 
they were concerned in the sense they were concerned about a rising Japanese power in the East. Yeah. Now, you, as you said, you're, you're, you're putting together and you're republishing, you're presiding over, but also do yourself republishing books that Americans wrote about their experiences uh, in the Russian Revolution in 1917 and early 1920s. Uh, and, and you talked a little bit about this series, but I, I'd like you to go into it more. Uh, talk about the, these, these eyewitnesses, you know, people like Louise Bryant, um, who, you know, what did they, they see and write about, uh, revolutionary Russia? Well, they saw, they saw that various things. Uh, the one I just mentioned, uh, Ernest Poole, uh, was there almost from the beginning, already familiar with Russia, having been there in 1905 and wanting to go to the countryside. And so he kind of left the politics and went into the social economic situation in the, in the uh, Russian countryside and how backward it was. And, um, but also with a, you might say a veneer of, uh, optimism that these are good people. Uh, this is the heartland. People talk about the America, real America being in the heartland. Uh, so the real Russia is in the Russian heartland and in the countryside. And, uh, he emphasized that. Now the others, Almost all of the, well, not all, but uh, a number of the Americans who were there were sent there by newspapers or magazines, like John Reed and Louise Bryant. They were all representing and writing back articles on that, uh, on what they were seeing. And most of them were staying in the cities, like Petrograd, and writing about the revolution, what they were seeing, witnessing hearing some of them knew already beforehand uh some of the main characters like Lenin and Trotsky and and were able to see them and talk to them and get information about what was going on um, so they vary um, and what we've done is to get these first of all collect the number of books about 25 of them eyewitnesses, not people from outside viewing the revolution, but people who were inside uh, and wrote about it. Some of them were collections of the articles already published in magazines or newspapers, but uh, later were put together as books and published during that period. One that just came out, in fact, this week, it's off the press, is uh, John Reed's Ten Days That Shook the World. And it took more time because Reed was pretty careless with spelling of names and a lot of them. And uh, it was a big job. A lot of uh, your your scholarly work has has you've worked you've collaborated with many uh, several Russian scholars of America over the years. Um, and I'm always kind of curious uh, how Russians write the history of America. Uh, you know, since most of us are involved in writing the history of Russia as Americans. So, um, what are some of the themes that Russian scholars are interested in, in, in writing about American history? Well, the best one I know of is, of course, uh, Nikolai Bokovitinov, who was a close friend of mine and, uh, helped me a lot in dealing with, uh, access to Russian archives and, 
uh, guiding me, uh, as I did him, uh, in fact, in, in the U.S., I would say two topics stand out. Uh, one of them we've already kind of covered, the uh, serfdom slavery uh, issue. The Russians were not so much interested in commerce as I have been, uh, the trade and economic connections, but to some degree, that's uh, changed with recent scholarship. And I think that the other thing was the purchase of Alaska, or sale of Alaska. Yeah, the Russians in Alaska. And I've just been reading uh, a book by Sergei Zhuk, The Cultural History of Russian and Ukrainian Americanists. That's the title. It just came out. He uh goes into one aspect that uh, <laughs> Russians got fascinated by the idea of American Indians. This comes out in 19th century literature, too. The red men. They expect Americans coming to Russia to be red-colored. <laughs> and uh, and in the Soviet Union, beginning in, well, maybe the 1930s, I guess, but certainly after the war, uh, during the Cold War, in fact, uh, there was a fascination with American Indians. Uh, there was a fascinating fascination here to some extent. I mean, as a kid, you played cowboy and Indians. And uh, there is Indians, not the cowboys. <laughs> and they they uh, imitated powwows and things like that, dressed up as Indians and danced around a campfire uh, out in the woods uh, outside Moscow. <laughs> this was going on. And Kiev, the Ukraine had him too. And uh, there was some serious scholarship going on at that time too. Um, there was a woman named Ava Karina. Uh, that's not right. I'd have to look it up. But she's uh, uh, in the 1930s began her interest in Northwest Native Americans and come out of some of the literature that was available in Russia on Alaska and the natives there. And there have been other good scholarly work on um, Alaska natives and that area, particularly by by Russians. That's uh, one of the things that comes into the play and uh, fascination with America. The other thing is... Uh, vast expanses of land and roads, how America coped with the countryside and getting through it and into it was by building railroads and then roads. The Russians managed some of the former, that is, building railroads, Trans-Siberian, but uh, failed mostly on the latter, building transcontinental uh, roads, highways and a highway system that interconnected all, the, all these little towns, like the interstate highway system. That's been a weakness, and they've been fascinated by that and wanting to do it. There are not many Kokomos. <laughs> I uh, have relatives in Kokomo, so I use that as an example. Not many Kokomos in Russia. Towns of around forty, fifty thousand that are prosperous, well settled, 
you can live there as well as you can live in New York, kinds of communities connected by these this highway system. Truckers are the lifeblood, you might say, of middle America. Yeah, finally, um, given the, the, the kind of dismal state of U.S.-Russia relations today, uh, what do you think we can learn from the history of those relations in the 19th century that, that may help us deal with the state of relations today? Well, uh, we've covered this, uh, I think, some uh, up, things have been up and down before. That's the main thing. And uh, and we'll continue to be up and down. Uh, right now, I think we're in a down circle due perhaps to the aggressive policies of uh, Vladimir Putin and company. Um, this ties in maybe with uh, Russian-American relations. I just learned from Zhuk's book that uh, Alexander Fersico, who's one of the leading Leningrad scholars of America, who died well about 10 years ago, I guess, uh, his two sons are friends of Vladimir Putin growing up in, when he was growing up in St. Petersburg. So I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> I, but it could be worked on. Promising things are the continuation of conference meetings linking American scholars with Russians in the field in both the United States and Russia. There are always uh, a sizable number, in fact, of Russians participating and Ukrainians participating in the uh, uh, annual Slavic conferences. And uh, there are conferences going on in Russia. Um, in recent years, there have been meetings in Volgda, um, Volgograd, in addition to Moscow and St. Petersburg. And there's one coming up, I think, in early November in Ekaterinburg. And these are being sponsored by uh, one of the government foundations, I think, in Russia. And uh, and also by the help from the American State Department that the embassy can apply for and support American visitors. So basically, no matter, you know, given even if the diplomatic relations at the political high political levels are bad, these cultural relations continue and they're they're quite important. Yeah, that was Norman Saul, a professor emeritus of history and of Russian and East European and Eurasian studies at the University of Kansas, where he taught for 40 years. He's the author of several books on U.S. Russian relations, including Distant Friends, the United States and Russia, 1763 to 1867, Concord and Conflict, the United States and Russia, 1867 to 1914, War and Revolution, the United States and Russia, 1914 to 1921, among many others. He's the editor of the Journal of Russian American Studies and the book series Americans and Revolutionary Russia, published by Slavica Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, 
or write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.